My guest today is the Vice President of Sales EMEA at HubSpot. And here's just a few of the things his colleagues say about him. I consider Ed to be among one of the best managers I've ever had in my career and an inspiration when it comes to people management. Always putting his people and customers' interests first without ever missing a business goal. Here's another one. Ed is a bright, talented, tenacious salesman and sales leader. And finally, Ed's approach to people management has been an inspiration to me since I left IBM in 2000. And I still consider Ed to be the best manager I've ever had in my career. Ed Barrett, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Bob. Great to be here. Ed, it's, it's a long time since I've seen you. I think I first met you was back in IBM. That is, would you believe, 19 years ago. Oh, crikey. Or 18, 18 yeah, 18, 18, 19 years ago. That, yeah. that long ago. Um, you've come a long way since, and many congratulations on that. I, I know that you were uh, promoted to VP of EMEA last year. Uh, but tell me one thing I don't know. Where did you grow up? I'm originally from Dublin, actually, Paul. Um, grew up in the middle of Dublin, not far from what's now the Aviva Stand, uh, Stadium. We used to call it Lansdowne back then. Um, so, uh, yeah, from Dublin originally, although my heritage on my parents' side is uh, Tipperary and Limerick. So, um, no, oh, you heritage. didn't just say that. We're just going to end the podcast right I, now. I mean, I know, so to, I, a Kilkenny I, I, man, to a Kilkenny man, you couldn't have hurt me more. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, the cats aren't having it as good as they used to. So <laughs> no, no, no. But um, yeah, look, we had it anyway. I don't want to bore people who don't understand the the cultural references here. But uh, but at least at least you have some Dublin in you. That's a good thing, right? I do. Yeah, brought up in Dublin mostly. Um, and interestingly, I moved after graduation. Like pretty much everyone of my generation, you've seen as you've given away. It's been nineteen years since we met. People know of my generation. We pretty much all left the country, so I uh, went to London after graduating, which was fabulous. Uh, and even before graduating, I worked in London for a few summer jobs, and that's what that was my first introduction to sales. Um, and you can imagine, you know, there was a very green Irish guy going over to London. Um, a summer got got a summer job working in an office selling what's called variable speed controllers. I didn't know what they were. They're basically, they're using manufacturing lines to control the speed of conveyor belts and things like that. And I was thrown in after two days, thrown in, saying, okay, go answer the phone, talk to customers. And it was fabulous. Absolutely incredible experience. Uh, learned a lot, learned, failed a ton, uh, but worked with really tolerant people who just, once you're willing to graft and try hard and, and mm. learn, um, they'd forgive and you could move on. And it was it was fantastic. Really great experience. That brings up an interesting question because you said you're, or it sounded like you're certainly thrown in at the deep end. Nowadays, most people, when they join a company, they'll have sometimes weeks of training. Uh, which is better? If, or do you have a, a view on that? Yeah, I suppose it depends on the role, but I think the better equipped people are, the better they'll solve for the customer at the end of the day. You know, uh, mm. you want to really have somebody who hasn't a clue what they're doing talking to customers nowadays. I don't think that's fair on the customer necessarily, and it's probably not fair on mm. the individual. Um, but mm. certainly that experience helped me build some resilience um, because there was a couple of other people in the office who joined the same time as me, and, um, you know, they didn't survive to be truthful so it was quite a mm. you know, an, uh, cutthroat type environment uh, in many ways and uh, but it, it was cutthroat not so cutthroat that I wasn't asked back so when I graduated 
in in back then it was marketing management. Um, I went back to this company in London on a permanent basis and got uh, into sales and product management, which is a whole new world for me then. Um, mm. And that was fabulous to get get asked back. But one of the first experiences I had when I went back permanently was I was giving a telephone directory of companies in the north of England and told to call them and find customers. And that was pretty much zero training. And uh, by crikey, you 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 move you you learn fast in that environment. Now you get tips mm. from people. You get a lot of rejections. You got a lot of no's. You got a lot of uh, tell me more. And a lot of generous people as well on the other end of a line. You know, I, I often think of it now when I get I still still get cold calls nowadays, which is uh, somewhat surprising. Um, it's somebody at the other end of the line trying to do a job, you know, at least give mm. them courtesy, have some respect for what they're trying yeah. to achieve. And yeah. you know, don't string them along, but, you know, uh, at least yeah. them for a moment. That's really interesting because you said, you, I like the word you used, generous. And actually, that's when I met you was IBM and you remember Peter O'Neill. Yes. And yeah. I, I, I call, call Peter O'Neill and that's, that's the word, generous. He was generous with me. He gave me some time. And he could have easily just brushed it aside and said, look, Paul, we've got sales training, yada, yada, yada. But he didn't. He just probably, like you said, here's somebody just out trying to do something. And I, I, I think it would behoove us all to remember that a little bit more and be more, because it's very easy um, to brush it off and kind of go, I'm busy now. And yeah. with just a little bit, even, you know, a minute, it doesn't kill to, doesn't. and you never know what you learn, right? Well, it's true. You know, I, I, I've had a call, I'd say, three weeks ago from somebody which surprisingly turned into something. Um, so I'm not not advocating for cold calling all the time, but it sort of worked and it surprised me. But I think mm. leaning into the, you know, like, give this person a moment um, and the worst outcome is, no, it's the wrong time for me. Leave it alone. Um, but it turned into mm. something. So I think that it's not a bad approach overall. But sometimes mm. we're all so busy, though, you know, it's got to be cut short now. Yeah. And that's sure. You went to London, you said, and you, you mentioned a couple of people you were working with that didn't make it. I'm curious to know, did they were they immigrants like you? Um, no, they weren't, actually, no. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, it, it was a very salesy, you know, it, would, it was an environment then that probably wouldn't survive nowadays. Um, mm. And it was very cutthroat. And people yeah. knew, people knew within three weeks, is this person going to make it? In other words, were they afraid of the phone? Were they not? Were they, could they get on? Yeah. Could they not? They could yeah. learn the product. That was okay. Yeah. Um, and, and as a result of that, you could see people sort of nearly being ostracized after three weeks if they weren't going to make it. People said, oh, it was like a bit yeah. of like the, the, the jungle in a way, you know? Yeah. I, I'm asking it because I think there's something, or I'm wondering if there's something in that immigrant personality in that you left your family, you left your friends to go. That That's almost then self-selecting in terms of grit. It, it takes something to do that. And then you're you're in another country and then there's the, the the pain of going through the picking the phone up and calling strangers versus the pain of getting a boat home and telling everybody you failed. And that tends to be a greater pain than picking the phone up in the moment. And, 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 and when you don't have that, it's easier to give up. And I'm just wondering how much that played in your success. I think I was fortunate in that I, I knew a couple of people in the company. Uh, well, I knew one person. I can, I, he was from Dublin, and I knew him probably a month before, so not, not deeply. But I think my, mm. most of the, the drive and the grit was really came from my parents and 
just a will to succeed and uh you know and i think also a will to not let people down you know my parents are a lot for my education for uh what i got so far in life and and uh i thought it would be a shame to let them down and indeed Mm. people who supported me getting the job Mm. as well so it was a lot of i i wouldn't lean too much into the immigrant to be truthful okay well, then tell me, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit as much as you want to about your parents and the influence they've had on you in terms of your own traits and characteristics and, and what you got from them. It's, uh, well, um, I think, like a lot of people of my parents' generation, education was key. So they sacrificed enormously. When I think of um, the lifestyle and where I spend my time personally now and what my parents gave up, uh, it, it was quite significant, and I think education was key for them. So, you know, I have five siblings, typical Irish-sized family back then, uh, and they all got through university and through education uh, when, uh, you know, it wasn't as easy back then as it may be today. So that, above all, was 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 one thing. I think the other thing was just honesty, a sense of integrity, um, because you know the saying I heard much later, um, not necessarily from my my parents, which was. You know, it takes years to build a reputation. It takes seconds to destroy it. And having integrity and having honesty, above all, you can always sleep at night, you know, and that's uh, that stuck with me. Yeah. Um, in terms of sales and the career you've had on that, I'm wondering, is there were there any clues in your growing up that you can look back on and, and see or to the outside or go, oh, yeah, Ed was going to always end up in sales? Uh, a few in, in personal situations, yeah. I don't think many people would have observed it. Uh, mm. You know, I remember selling fizzle sticks back to my parents uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I was probably I, 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 years <laughs> Yeah, you should explain what fizzle sticks are for the people. Not everybody will get it because you <laughs> can't get them anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. the concept of set, setting up a store in the backyard to sell things um, was was one of the early stages, I suppose. Um, and then, look, there was always an interest in business projects in school and that sort of thing. Um, but my parents mm. are not, weren't, you know, didn't have their own business. Uh, my mother was a teacher. My father uh, managed uh, transport. Um, so uh, they were, you know, very different in, in that respect. Um, mm. But, yeah, I think dealing with people became more and more of a thing as I grew older, I think, you know, when, when I got to college and, and beyond. Uh, mm. And. I think what's really interesting about that is just connecting with people. There's a huge interest yeah. in people of different backgrounds, different interests, you know, why they're doing things, their motivation, and that's that's still with me yeah. today. You know, I think it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And and you've obviously met a lot a lot of people throughout that journey, but specifically maybe in the early days of sales, I'm wondering what you learned about people and about humanity that has stayed with you. I think people are the same the world over. You know, I've I've been to probably the guts of 40 countries globally. I've worked in the UK for seven years, worked in the US for, for two years. Um, the one thing that's common is you've got the good, the bad, and the ugly everywhere. And so, you know, stereotyping and judging people based on where they're from is incorrect. You know, it's not fair. Uh, I think, and you should judge people on their own merits. I think that's probably one mantra I would stick with. And then the more you travel, the more you realize that to be true. Mm. And then as you transition from sales into leadership, talk to me about that journey and the, maybe some of the hiccups for you along the way. Yeah. Um, so 
I took I came back from the UK and I was working for a, a smallish Irish electronics company. It was a great experience, but a very you know family companies can be difficult uh, in the sense that if you're yeah. not from family, it's hard for you to progress. So I applied for a job with uh, IBM and Philips, and by the time IBM came back and I got through the process, I was a year working in Philips, uh, selling to the Apples and and the. APCs and the three comms of the world back then uh, in, in Ireland. And that was a pure sales job um, and, a, and a product on ASICs and stuff like that, chips. Um, I was just going to say it was semiconductors for Philips. Semiconductors, yeah, not, not the... Oh, snap. Uh, yeah. I did that for Motorola. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was, it, was, it was an interesting sales role and account management role. Um, but the piece in IBM, a job came up to manage people. Mm. Uh, and I, I took that and that was uh, really interesting because I ended up walking into a, a support organization, not a sales organization. And that's probably the best people management experience I've had in my career. Um, so I rocked up uh, managing a bunch of techies. They knew everything more than I did. I wasn't a techie. Um, but what I could bring to the party was a bit of organization and a bit of motivation and a bit of structure and things like that. And uh, it went from a team of eight people to a team of 30 uh, pretty quickly. And then uh, after about nine months there, I was asked to, to head up the whole support organization, which was about 320 people. Um, and that happened you know, nine months after joining uh, IBM. Wow. Quite extraordinary. And uh, it was a ma magical experience to see how the, probably the best learning, and I use this in sales all the time, which is it's if you obsess as a leader and a manager about the outputs, in other words, the number, the number, the number, you're failing already. You've got to obsess about the inputs, and the, the outputs will come if the inputs are right. So, in a support organization, everyone obsessed about how many calls do people do and how long were the calls. And we flipped that around and said, okay, how educated are the are our folks, and how we give them tips and how to answer questions quickly. How can we be more supportive of the customer so they we solve their problem and they they move on to the next one. And those inputs really mattered and motivation of people, small things like thank you, matters enormously. And mm. those inputs changed the whole dynamic of that organization. And that for me was the biggest learning that you could really change an organization by supporting inputs and basically re respecting people a bit more because it was a bit of a sweatshop at times and people mm. were, were, were leaving and stuff. And we changed all of that around. Um, and, and the other lesson was learning setting standards. We set a bar of expectations with people and some people didn't make the bar and they left the business and, and everyone else did. And that created a very positive environment, not a negative, mm. a very positive environment. So that was a great yeah. learning uh, in people management and um, setting out your stall and being just being straight with people. Mm. Um, I'm curious how that, sorry, mm. go ahead. Yeah, so I'm going to move on to the, the sales piece then. Yeah. And uh, one of the first experiences there was actually BDR management who was asked to set up a new mission um, to call into what's a certain customer base and try and find that new business. Um, and that was set up from scratch. That was another amazing experience too, because you're you're trying to convince people to join a mission that really hasn't established itself. Then you're trying to um, set up processes from scratch and set up uh, a whole uh, call uh, effectiveness with BDOs and, and sourcing new business and a top track. Mm and all of that, and training for a whole new organization. And that was a magical experience uh, as well, because great people, I mean, the secret is build a brilliant team. Build a that brilliant was Hughes' organization, was it? Um, that would have been, yeah, just, 
just before Hugh joined, I think, um, he came from IBM Ireland into IBM.com. So, yeah, um, yeah. but he, he was um, he was one of the key sponsors of that. Uh, and, it, and that's still there today. Really fantastic uh, yeah. organization. Talk to me there, because what I was going to ask you was, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> you, you mentioned in the support organization, the focus not on outputs, but on inputs. Yeah. How did... How did that translate then over into the sales arena where still to this day, so many organizations focus on outputs and not on inputs? What were the kind of inputs then and now that you're seeing that are really important to control? Yeah, control, I guess. Yeah, well, first of all, there's a foundation of the inputs, which is having training your people uh, and making sure they're enabled to do their job successfully. Um, so many salespeople waste time either because they don't have information to hand they haven't been trained in it, or the process itself is just a car crash for them to, to manage. So uh, I think that, that piece is very important. And then it's the inputs around, you know, if you, if you don't make calls or if you don't outreach to customers, you won't find a pipeline. So if you don't have a pipeline, mm. nothing, doesn't matter how good you are at selling. Mm. And then it's looking at your funnel metrics beyond that. Uh, how many reaches are you, outreaches are you making? What proportion of those are turning into uh, qualified leads? And then in the funnel, the typical funnel, Excuse me, to, to anyone who's listening, like your typical funnel is going to be the same. It's going to be your initial contact with the, the customer. You're going to have an element of the prospect. You'll have an element of education. Then you'll have an element of demo beyond that. Then you'll have the negotiation and then you'll have a close. So within that process, how are your funnel metrics and where are they successful and where are they not met successful? Are you, um, are you letting too many people through stage one so that you're wasting a ton of time educating people about something they're not going to buy? Are, are mm. the opposite? Are you letting too few people through? So no matter how many you educate, you're still not going to get your number. So it's getting that balance in those funnel metrics right. And they're your leading indicators, which lead into a, an operating system or a management system, whereby your leading indicators can tell you how good your business is going to be next month, next quarter, next year, rather than trying mm. to rely on yeah, a lot of sales management is all about looking in the rearview mirror about, you know, was it good last week? Was it bad last week? It's too late. Kind of look in the what are your leading indicators that are going to indicate that you've got success, uh, and that ultimately mm. starts to, in today's world way beyond the the, the salesperson's outreach because uh, you probably have a better stat on this one than me, Paul. But uh, 60 70 percent of the decision and the uh, of a buy purchase is made before they contact uh, a salesperson. In other words, there's a lot of investigation and research mm. done online, so visits to a website are hugely important. Um, and is that continuing and how many clicks and how long they're on the website. So all of that, what used to be called marketing, really is part of that continuous sales process. And that is not the way I think a lot of sales management is done today. They don't see the end of the funnel. Yeah, that's interesting that, you know, and the, the stat I'm familiar with, I've heard it. And I'm, I'm often uncomfortable with it as a standalone stat because it fits a certain type of business that, that people are familiar with. So if I'm looking, for example, a CRM product, well, yeah. that's a well-established market. And so there's certain people I'm going to start going on their website and going to start doing my research. But if there's something new, a new category on the market that people haven't even looked at yet, um, as CRM was some, some years ago, um, then if people are not looking for it, they, they're, they're, you, 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 you can then go and find the kind of issues and challenges that they have, but they're not, 
they're not on your website and there's something else. And then there's another one that was a, a, one of the best reps I knew. And she worked in the public sector. And she would literally, two years before an RFP would ever come out, she'd be in there with white papers coming from the European Union going, here's new legislation that they're discussing. It might even be a green paper at that stage. And she'd make them aware of what was up and coming. And then, of course, when the time came around. So there's, and I'm, and I'm putting that out there to kind of wonder how do we capture that business that's bubbling under the surface that really isn't, people are not out searching for yet, but they still have the problems or they're going to have the problem if they don't take some action. Yeah, I think, I think you've put that really well in the sense that before they buy the product, they have a problem. So I, mm. I think a lot of what should, companies should be educating on the website is problem solving. Um, so the concept is that on, on your website, typically digitally and even public sector now, I mean, they, they trawl the website to, uh, it's going to be around a topic where there's a problem to solve. And I think it's incumbent upon really good companies to uh, educate the prospect, not about their product, but about the the problems that they solve, mm. that their product solve. And that's what ultimately brings a bit of loyalty. And, and then, when, then when they have a real need, they'll come and click on your, your website to understand more. Um, mm. So I, I think I would argue that education yeah. of prospects is crucial before their prospects. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense to me, the way you put it, that it's not, they're not coming to your website to find a solution. They're coming to try and understand their problem better. Yeah. And then it's a direct result. Okay, that makes sense. The other thing that you mentioned that I was interested about, and I do want to come back to, we're kind of deep dive more into kind of work stuff, but it's it's it's, it's of interest, um, is the, the idea, you know, for example, HubSpot are an inbound marketing organization, but you also mentioned outreach. Mm-hmm. And so where's the line between inbound and then somebody picking up the phone and calling a prospect? Well, the concept of inbound is back to this sort of education thing. If you educate and you create content that people have an interest in, then naturally they want to learn more and they'll fill out a form on a website or wherever it might be and say, you know, to keep me informed. So mm-hmm. in that respect, uh, that's where you can outreach. Uh, you can connect with those people where they might have expressed a particular need on a product, but they have an outreach or they have an interest in a particular area. And you can say, well, look, this is something you might be need to be aware of. Mm. Um, mm. So I think that's sort of an extension of the, the concept of inbound. I think the whole idea, and I mentioned the, the, the cold call word earlier on, I mean, that is just, you know, spray and pray type sales. You know, it's if, if it's not targeted nowadays, then uh, your your success rate is going to be less. I think that's mm. just a, the mathematics. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's an important distinction because even in my head, I would have still regarded that as a cold call, even if they'd filled in some sort of form because it's to do with the relationship, et cetera. But what you're saying is it's really a targeted call rather than a cold call. Yeah, and, and absolutely. That's important. And, and I think, you know, more and more customers have an ongoing, or prospects have an ongoing relationship with you before they're a customer because yeah. of the interest in the area of the problem that you that your product can solve. Mm. Makes um, yeah. So tell me, Ed, in what you're doing currently, what's motivating you the most? Since I um, started working, I mentioned variable speed controllers back in, you know, years gone by. Technology has been really, really interesting to me. And it's just one of the, I'm a bit of a techie head without being a techie head. Um, so never qualified in that area. But I think 
what's really amazing, we've, we've gone through the past, the year of the iPhone was 2007. So the past 15 years, we've seen since that technology came on board, so many life processes change. How we do things has changed utterly as humans. And we probably haven't realized it because it's been the slow change in a sense. Um, but for me, the, the impact of technology to change uh, how we do things, how we think about things and, and free up time for people uh, is, is huge. And I think that's what, what I found, what interests me about HubSpot. When I started talking um, to, to Christian back, Christian Kinnear, I think you know Christian. Um, yes. He's the CSO now for HubSpot. And um, he was telling me, we talked about the impact of the company on customers. And that was a really interesting discussion because you're not talking about product and bits and bytes and all that sort of stuff. You're talking about this product actually changes how people think about that funnel I talked about, extending that funnel, the, the life cycle of a contact. Um, so and HubSpot can create this single platform that enables those end users to have that single view of, of a contact instead of the website guys having one application, the sales guys having another CRM application, support guys having another application, that it's actually one application, one database, one view. And that uh, means customers can compete. Customers can do their job a lot easier. Um, people aren't spending their ages trying to connect systems. They're actually spending time thinking, looking at the data and looking at information on their customers. So that, that ability for technology to impact whatever it was uh, is, is of interest to me. You know, Similarly, I worked in, in Google Cloud. I thought the impact of Google Cloud's workspace uh, product for people to share information and share documents in real time, move into a remote world. That was amazing uh, what it could do for lives. So I think for me, the buzz is is how we can impact and how technology can impact end users and, and process and companies and people. Interesting, yeah. I, I, nobody's ever mentioned the technology side and the impact it has on people before. It's interesting. Yeah, it's true, it is transformative. Um, who would you say then that who inspires you the most? Inspires. That's a, it's it's a combination. I think it's a persona I met when I first went to to London. Um, persona I met of somebody uh, who balanced a fun with 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 work, um, and I saw that again. In, in parts of IBM.com, and I saw that again in, in Google and again in HubSpot. Um, I think the ability to realize, to take your job seriously, but also realize it's a job, folks. You know, um, mm -hmm. We are blessed in, in the role that I have, blessed in sales, that we don't do her heart surgery. Um, God knows, you know, if I had to do heart surgery some of the Monday mornings I woke up, <laughs> It wouldn't be a good view, um, you know, and we are very blessed about that. And, and I think sometimes we should just get sense of proportion because I saw in, in the years I've worked the, the other extreme where people take, took things way too seriously and were very aggressive and impolite and disrespectful to other people mm -hmm. because they were stressed about a certain, you know, in sales in a number. And you're going, right, really, is that a rational thing to do? Is that a, something you want to be? Uh, not really. Um, mm. So I think that I've seen that in in so many positive respects, and I've seen the opposite then in, in many mm. negative respects. And for me, being being that respectful, but also uh, aggressive in terms of wanting to get stuff done, but also remembering as yeah. people involved is is important. 
And, and in that context, what have you seen over the last 20 years in the world of work that has been very a welcome change? Certainly, I think uh, the, the whole uh, command and control system that companies used to operate by has shifted significantly. And anyone who's still stuck in that mode are, are losing. And you can see it even in what we talked about, the technology changes. The more modern companies that are more successful and more agile are those where they're looking for the best idea from wherever it comes. And they're looking to execute mm. in a way across functionally that isn't command and control. It goes up to the top and then down and then up again. Mm. Uh, that, that's just, just outdated and it doesn't work. And it doesn't get the best out of talent. Um, mm. Why in the, in the previous structure of command and control, all that so-called talent was at the top? Well, it's not. It's everywhere. Uh, and I think that ability to realize the talent of everyone in the organization, no matter what mm. their role, is the biggest change in work. And to, uh, and I think that's the biggest reason for success of many companies, mm. the right talent in the right place being recognized in the right way. Has that change, did it come from the top or was it came from employees who, you know, when there's an employee, employer, employee's market, for example, that demands change? Is it a generational thing, I guess is what I'm asking. I think it came, I think it's related to the technology shift. I think you ended up having very successful companies run by people who didn't come from the command and control sort of environment. Uh, and they overtook those old style companies. And then everyone started realizing, well, actually, you don't have to be like that anymore. And I think that started that shift. Uh, that would be my observation now without any scientific look at it. No, that's a brilliant observation, Ed. That's absolutely, as you said it, I thought, I never thought of that. And you're absolutely right. And that's when you saw the change where people, you would have seen it at IBM, I had it in companies I work for, you came to work, you came to work in a shirt and tie. And then there was, there was a point, and I know that's symbolic, but there was a, there was a pivot when people, successful people, people running multi-million and now billion dollar companies we're showing up in just, you know, smart business attire and sometimes not even that. Steve Jobs, you mentioned Apple earlier. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting insight. But, but look what's happening. If you look at the more traditional industries like banking or uh, the legal, um, they're only now beginning to lose the tie. They're having, you know, been now, only now beginning to have dress down day. Mm. Or mm. the whole idea of working remotely was anathema until they had to do it in COVID. And all of a sudden it became, geez, we can actually do this. So mm. I think uh, I think technology and circumstances are, are driving shifts in behavior and norm mm. within different industries. Yeah. And so then how, so what I see is uh, employees who have seem to have far more agency over their role and their participation in that role. To a point, I say far more, I'm, I'm not, it's not unlimited, clearly. I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of how you motivate those. And again, sometimes when I ask that question, I'll get a, a kind of a vague answer like, oh, it's all about servant leadership. What I'm looking for more kind of more practical examples of, yeah. a, you know, instances of motivating people where you're not employing a command and control system. Yeah, I think I again very lucky to be working in a company like HubSpot, where that's the course, the culture. We, we, there's a few um, mantras we have, uh, our traits within the, the organization. The first one is um, we don't have a huge policy book. We've got what we call UGJ, use good judgment. 
So when somebody says, you know, how much should I expense uh, on, on that dinner with, with the, the client or whatever it might be, the partner, you say, well, mm. use judgment. You don't say, right, mm. you can only spend 135 euro or pounds or whatever it might be. You yeah. say, use good judgment. What would you do if this was yours? And that is a personification of just in realizing everyone's an adult. Trust them to make a right decision. Um, and one of the, the HubSpot is, is renowned for having a 140 slide uh, deck about culture code. And it's really worth a watch. I'd strongly, strongly watch it. But one of my favorite um, slides, and it says, we don't punish the many for the sins of the few. And what mm. that means is if somebody takes that dinner, say, and they spend 500 euro, uh, in every other company, it's like, oh, we've got to put in a policy because yeah. Johnny made a bad decision. And instead, if you say, well, look, this happened once out of 200 times, why don't mm. we just leave it the way it is? We'll have a chat with Johnny and say, look, that wasn't necessarily using good judgment, but everyone else is fine mm. and not create a rule. And yeah. the, the background of that is just everyone's an adult. Treat them like adults. Treat them with respect. Um, and I think the respect word is probably the most important part of this. If you treat people with respect, that's a two-way street. You ask their opinion, you get their inputs and back to the motivation. If people feel empowered to run their business within certain guardrails then and with the right supports, then they can be successful and they be feel freer and more motivated to, to run it in the way they want to do it. And that's how mm. we like to think we manage the sales team organization in, in HubSpot, which is it's all about here's what we want to achieve. Here's what we're enabling you with. Um, go figure. Um, mm. We train you and support you and what you need, but ultimately... Everyone is a little bit different. Here's how we recommend you do a, a, a call, and here's how we recommend you do stuff. But you'll have your own style, and you'll want to try different things, and that's okay. Uh, and I think yeah. empowerment and respect really builds a sense of trust. And if you have that trust, yeah. then I think you can conquer the world. I love it. When you think back over the last few years, Ed, in terms of your own, your own growth as a leader, what were the areas you felt that you needed to work hardest on in order to become who you are today? Oh boy. Um, I think uh, I think it's managing the combination of the people and an operation in a way that the people continue to feel that empowerment and that trust and that respect um, and not micromanaged. And, and I think in a sales operation, you've, I think that's where you've got to put your energy. Because the tendency is, oh, we're, you know, we're having a tough month or a tough quarter or a tough year. Let's, you know, uh, let's micro dive into everything and micromanage and therefore it'll get better because I know I really know best. And that's mm. not the truth. You know, if, if you can resist that temptation as a leader, I think, and just identify how you can support people to do their job better. Then again, back to the inputs, then the outputs will come. And that's really hard in, in a sales, fast-moving sales environment because the pressure's on and the number's this and you got to get it up and you've got to have the story and all of that is, is the pressure on you as a leader. Um, mm. but ultimately, if you trust the people, support them on, on how to do their job better, listen to what's not working and support fixing that, those inputs then will deliver the output in the end and you got to just trust it. Uh, and mm. that is probably been the biggest learning over all the years about um, trying to ensure you don't knee-jerk into micromanagement um, because there's a mm. tendency in sales is, you know, ultimately, I know what to do. 
So I'll do it and I'll micromanage and that's not right. It doesn't help people. Yeah. I'm wondering if you ever get away in your own head, not you personally, but one gets away in their own head from the knee-jerk reactions and then and then the, the learnings kick in. I, and I'm asking this because I had that thought recently. I was in a given scenario. In my own head, it was, oh, for, just do it this way, right? <laughs> and then you kind of think, okay, that's not going to help. Yeah. But it's like it's it's almost like I can never get away from that 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 knee jerk internal dialogue, which is oh, just just do it this way. Or here the other the other problem here. Let me do it. Yeah. Well, does it ever go away? It it does. It's something all new managers go through. I was talking to some uh, recently promoted managers, and to me the cycle is the first two months is you know you're trying to figure out what do I do. Uh, mm -hmm. then you realize, well, I can do it better than this person, so I'm going to help them by doing their job for them. And then very quickly you realize, well, I can't do everyone's job on drowning. Uh, and you figure out, okay, I better step back and I better listen to that training I got about coaching. And that's when you start coaching and you start helping uh, salespeople in, in, in the correct way. Um, and I think that's probably the cycle of management, uh, letting mm -hmm. go. I, from being an individual contributor, I'm really good at selling to doing it for my sales people when I become a manager and then you've got to walk away from that and actually become a manager and, and a coach. You've just given me a great idea for the for a sales management curriculum, which is the first two months, <laughs> oh hell, what do I do? The next two months, I, I'll do it myself. <laughs> then after that, oh hell, <laughs> I, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great a, idea. It's a tough one for, for the management people. journey. Yeah, it's probably the yeah. top career transition anyone makes is going from individual contributor to people manager because you actually lose control instead of gaining control. People think, "Oh, I'm now the boss. I'm not getting control." You lose. Yeah, control. and why is it that it's well? This is my perception, and I only have a certain narrow perception on this. But it seems to me that sales organization, whether it's SDRs, AEs, whatever, fuel sales. They get a ton of training, but then when they go into management, they may get a very generic one. But yeah. they don't—they don't seem to be focused on the same way. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts on that. If there's reasons for, or even if I could be completely wrong, and maybe my perception is outdated. Yeah, I think uh, I think management training. There's two types. The one is here are the processes you've got to follow as a manager because you're now managing people, and there's a HR element, and there's a people coaching element, and all that. So here, here's those uh, processing type activities. The bit that I think um, is probably weaker is, here's what being a manager actually means. Um, here's what situational leadership is. Here's uh, how to assess your team and where they are in their career and support their growth. Those sort of softer skills that are crucially important about developing a team and, and this individual in that team to their success and to their potential. Uh, I think mm. that emphasized less so at the outset because you got to get the process bit right. I do think though, and I certainly see where I'm now in, in Oxford, it's a lot more investment into that piece. Like we, we train on the grow model for coaching, for example. Mm. Um, and that's enlightening to people because it, it's not only good for the, the members of the team, but it's also good for the managers themselves and setting up that mm. structure. Um, we've got a, a recent training rolling out around uh, fearless feedback, how to give and take feedback. Things like that that are the soft skills that will serve you no matter what your job is in the future. Um, mm. I think there's more emphasis in that now than there used to be for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it does vary by organization.
Um, we're almost up on time, Ed. I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions, uh, more about, well, personal nature. Mm -hmm. um, if your house is burning down and your family are safe, if you have any pets, they're safe. Your phone and computer are safe too. And you have, you have time to run back in and grab one thing. What would it be and why? It would be the photographs of my, uh, my parents that are not digitized, which you've given me a task to do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to say anything. Yeah. 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 That'll be worth it. Because, yeah. Everything else. Um, is, everything else is replaceable. Is in the cloud as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so there was one other question I wanted to ask you, and I went down in my head earlier, was around if you were Minister for Education, and you could put any subject on the Leaving Cert curriculum, what would it be? If you could make it mandatory, I should say. Uh, communication. Communication skills. When I went to the States, and I know we're time time, so we brief. Um, my eldest boy, he was seven, uh, and he walked into a school, and within six months, he had to dress up as a historical character and present to his class on that historical character. And he did JFK. As it turned out, the White House, where JFK was, was designed by Kilkenny Man, mm -hmm. uh, which is a fun fact. But uh, Foley or uh, Hogan? Hogan, that's the one. Um, mm. So I think the, the the piece of our education system that I think is weak, and, and I say to my kids now, when my eldest is doing the lead cert now, uh, which is similar to the A-levels, um, communication, maths, and English, you know, they're the three, are in math and, mathematics and English are the two subjects I use the most uh, in my job. Um, mm. So you can lean into them. I think the piece that's missing is communication. The ability to communicate mm. clearly, concisely, verbally and in, in writing is hugely powerful. Um, and in writing might become less so with, uh, with, with audio and with uh, looms and so forth and also with, um, with the way people text now. Um, mm. But I think communication skills is essential. And the, the other piece I'd say is Minister of Education. I would not get rid of history as a mandatory training. If you forget about your Why did you pick that one? Well, it's something that's topical at the moment in terms of I know the department is looking at whether there's, you know, whether they should maintain history. But if you mm. forget about your past, you don't learn from it. And if you don't learn from the past, you repeat it. Mm. Uh, so uh, history and communication. Mm. Well, I know Norma, Norma is a regular listener, so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> consider herself put on notice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Very good. On that note, Ed, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Paul. Thanks for having me.